Machine learning dates back to the mid-20th century. However, the idea that computer systems can be programmed to learn on their own has really only captured the public's attention recently, perhaps because of the sometimes oddly specific viewing suggestions curated in spaces like Netflix. At the same time, machine learning methods are finding their way into a variety of academic disciplines, and various government agencies are exploring how machine learning can help them better do their jobs. Machine learning is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio is regular panelist John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, Richard Campbell of Media, Journalism, and Film, is away today. Our guest is Duke University's Cynthia Rudin. Rudin is a professor of computer science, electrical and computer engineering, and statistical science at Duke, where she directs the prediction and analysis lab. Rudin is also an associate director of the Statistical and Applied Mathematical Sciences Institute. Cynthia, thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure. How did machine learning become your area of expertise? Well, I loved the idea of being able to predict the future. Mm. <laughs> and <laughs> um, I, I picked up a book from someone. It was Vapnik's book on statistical learning theory. And I just fell in love with the book. Um, and I, you know, I just, I said, I have to do this. These people are there. They can predict the future. And I want to do it. What was it and about so the book that, that hooked you? The, the so, sort of fundamentals, the fundamental idea of statistical learning theory, which is that um, the thing that allows you to predict the future is, you know, the fact that when you're a, a, a baby that you can learn so quickly, you can l learn language so quickly. And the reason for that isn't because a baby's brain can learn anything. It's because a baby's brain is wired to learn language and, you know, language in which humans communicate. So it's the fact that the baby's brain is limited that allows the baby to really learn um, and it's the same thing with statistical learning theory. You know, if you if you sort of limit how the algorithm is allowed to learn, um, then when the data comes, the algorithm can learn better. Mm. And so that that limitation, um, rather than the than the expanse of what can be learned, is is what attracted me to to the area. So the, the fundamentals of statistical learning theory. So, for example, if we were to take a step back and for you to say, what what is machine learning? What do you mean when you say that a machine learns? I, you know, people learn. Machines aren't learning in the same way people learn, are they? <laughs> okay, Chris, these are like philosophical questions. Okay, so <laughs> this is <laughs> so. Um, you know, machine learning is the uh, the art of um, uh, of of learning from from data, right? So it's the idea that data plus prior knowledge allows you to predict the future. And um, and and that's that's so cool, right? It's 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 like not just data. It's not it's not just you you feed it a whole bunch of data and it and it can understand things. It's data plus knowledge, and you have to put those together to to create predictive models. So, for instance, um, if I somehow know that, like let's let's say I'm trying to build a predictive model for which manholes are going to explode next year in New York City. All right. Perfect. This this is a problem I've actually worked on. I actually spent years working on this problem. And we had data from the power grid. And our goal was to predict, yeah, which, which manholes were going to have an explosion or a fire next year. And so that data alone was a giant mess. There was no way you could predict 
you know, if you just take that data and you just fit it into some black box and told it, predict me manhole events, it just wouldn't work. And in fact, it didn't work. It's somehow crafting the model, you know, forming this, this, this predictive model based on this data, um, using our prior knowledge that, that that somehow was able to help us predict uh, manhole fires and explosions. Like for instance, um, in some cases that prior knowledge might be very minimal. So, so you might know, for instance, that the model has to be simple in some way that the model has to be sparse in the number of factors. And those factors, you know what they are, and you have to craft them out of the data. Um, you know, there's a skill to doing that, and, and, I, and, and that's kind of what data science is about. That's what machine learning is about. Okay. Can you talk about some of the inputs that you had for this manhole explosion <laughs> prediction? What are some oh, of the things sure. that were important <laughs> variables for, to consider there? Yeah, I mean, I was working with the power company in New York City. I was working with Con Edison on this project, and um, as well as... Uh, Becky Passano and Exenia Radova. Um, and we had data about, we, we had accounting data from Con Edison dating all the way back to the, you know, 1890s from when power grids were first introduced into the world. I mean, New York City is the oldest grid in the world. So we had data from all the way back in the day when the original cables were put into the ground. And some of them are still in the ground. And we also had data about the manholes, what type of manhole it was. Was it a manhole or service box, um, how, and um, you know, so we knew all the cables that, that were connecting all these manholes and service boxes and connecting into the buildings. We had information on inspections, and we had information about past events on the power grid, like mm. if there was a fire or an explosion or a smoking manhole, somebody would call up Con Edison and they would start filling in a trouble ticket for the problem while they were directing the action of what to do about it. So you had this sort of document that detailed all of the responses and what was going on. Like, did they, did they bring a flush truck in to stick a big tube down the manhole and suck up all the gunk so that somebody could get in and fix all the burnouts? So those, those are the sorts of data we mm. had. I know one of the criticisms of machine learning has been that it is kind of a black box. And and I've been at talks where someone will be talking about what can we learn from algorithms or machine learning and then say, well, you know, we don't really know what's happening because it's a black box. So I guess I'm wondering from your perspective, what sort of things do you think data scientists can do to make that um, less opaque for for maybe – not even just the general audience, maybe for other scholars who use, who are used, trying to use and make sense of this work as well. Well, so the reason I decided not to work so much on black box models is because of the power grid project I was just talking to you about. Oh. So we were trying to predict fires and explosions, and we realized that our model, there was something wrong with it, and we didn't know what it was. Like, we, we showed Con Edison what the model, we showed Con Edison something important about the model which is that it was relying on the number of neutral cables in the manhole. And they said, there's something wrong with your model. We don't know what it is, but there's something wrong because those are not predictive. And neutral cables are not predictive. They don't carry current. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this, this shouldn't be predictive. And so we went back, and after a few months, we realized that there was something really important about the data that we didn't understand that was causing a confounding problem in our model. And so when we fixed it, we got a much better model, and Con Edison was able to, to sort of really like leverage that 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 knowledge that we that they gave us essentially by talking with us. And so I said that's it. I'm not doing any more high stakes <laughs> anything that's even vaguely high stakes anymore with with these black boxes because I don't understand what they do and there could be some very serious problems with the um 
with the models that you don't notice. You know, and, and, and it's gotten worse. I mean, it's so after after I stopped working on black box models for high stakes decisions, started working on these interpretable models, everybody else started like not everybody, but a lot of people started working on black box models for high stakes decisions and bad things happened. Uh, for instance, during the California wildfires last year, Google replaced their air quality index from the EPA, like this kind of mm -hmm. trustworthy statistician heavy <laughs> air quality index um, with, a, with a black box machine learning model from a company called Breezometer. And then all of a sudden people from California started writing on social media, you know, that, that there's something wrong. I mean, there's a layer of ash on my car. Why is it saying that it's safe to go outside? Uh. <laughs> you know, you don't know how many people these things affect when you do them. And, and if there's a mistake in it and it severely impacts someone's life, that's bad, right? Absolutely. So, yeah. And it's been going on continuously, like even in the criminal justice system, in healthcare. They recently found that there's a model that's being used for healthcare that has severe um, differences between the service that's being provided to white people and the services being provided to black people. And it was because the model was predicting the wrong thing. It was predicting the cost that individuals would, you know, they were saying, well, we'll give people extra services if they're, if they're going to, if we're predicting that they'll be high cost next year. Uh. But the problem is that the, that the black people were getting lower cost health care. And so even though they were more severely ill, the, the model predicted that they were not going to need these extra services. So there's been a lot of problems like this where people didn't really understand what the machine learning was predicting or how it was making its predictions. And that led to serious implications for other people. Mm -hmm. And so we, we don't want that to happen. So we're trying to design machine learning tools that predict um, and, and explain themselves in a way that people can understand. Well, it's, yeah, it sounds like the inputs to the, these, these machine learning algorithms are just critical. And, and understanding how how they're they're being incorporated into these predictions is just seems like it's a it's it's a, such a, a dramatically important thing to do that that if you're just naively building based on a whole collection of variables without insight that you could could really go down some some bad bad rabbit holes. Yeah, and this is obvious to a lot of statisticians, but and a lot of data scientists, but there are many people for whom it's not obvious to, and so that's where the problem lies. You've given some some examples of some some uh, fails in machine learning. I mean, the the example of that the the wild the wildfire prediction, and some of these healthcare examples. Are are there some success stories that that you would you would highlight as being really impressive? Oh, there's a lot of really impressive success stories. I, I was I was I was figuring that this is this is a lob to the net, Cynthia. <laughs> um, well, let's see. I mean, I I think the fact that we're able to search the internet so effectively at all is is a big success story for for search engines in general, and you know, search engines are heavily machine learning. You know, they have other things in them besides machine learning, but they also have machine learning in them. Mm -hmm. Um, some some search engines more than others. Uh, recommender systems also. I mean, even though you you get a little scared that they might be a little too good sometimes, <laughs> they are a big success story for machine learning. Are you talking about like Netflix telling me I should watch a lot of British crime shows because I do in fact watch a lot of British crime shows? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, there's there's machine learning in a lot of places where you wouldn't expect right now. I mean, I think people are trying to automate 
huge amounts of, of service oriented types of things where, where you know you have a, a limited number of, of of people who can service other people right mm -hmm. um, and and so you have to prioritize who you need to service so for instance you know the, the emergency room does I don't think they were using machine learning to do what they're doing but but they have kind of a critical like they have critical problems like how can we free up beds so that we have them for people who need them right these are logistical questions, but they also involve predictions. Like, mm -hmm. can we predict how many people are going to come into the emergency room today that need beds? Like, what could, can we make those beds available? Um, so these are going to be problems that kind of arise in the future that are kind of more high stakes. Um, so most of the, most of the major successes of machine learning, like Facebook being able to tag images with information, um, that's, that's sort of more low stakes. Um, and, and there's a distinction between those tasks, which are machine learning is all over Facebook, right? Yeah, um, but uh, th there's a there's a distinction between those tasks, which are low stakes decisions. Like if you get it wrong, no, you know, it doesn't really matter that much. Um, between those decisions and the high stakes decisions, like can we make sure there are free hospital beds? Well, that's a more high stakes decision. Or can we make sure that our loan decisions are done correctly so that people can get the critical loan that they need to start their life or their career? You're listening to Stats and Stories, and our guest today is Cynthia Rudin of Duke University. Cynthia, I'm going to uh, switch gears a little bit and ask you about some of the work you've been doing on predictive policing and, and wondered if you could just first explain for uh, people who may not be aware what predictive policing is. Yeah, so I'm, I'm not sure that what I'm doing is exactly classified as pr predictive policing. Um, I think predictive policing is pretty pretty broad. It's, it's sort of you know, how can police use data analytics to to predict what would be effective actions for them to take? So should they go to a certain area? Is there a certain street corner where there might be a violent crime next week? Should we send somebody there or should we send someone to parole in this area? Um, so I haven't worked on that problem, but I've worked on a different problem that's very, very closely related, which is crime series detection. And I got involved in this when I was faculty at MIT and um, someone from the Cambridge Police Department, Dan Wagner, came into the university, came to MIT and asked for some help on a problem. He wanted to try to determine which crimes in a, in the database, which crimes that had already been committed were committed by the same individuals or group of individuals. Mm -hmm. So this is called a crime series. So there might be uh, groups of, of two or three people that work in one neighborhood and they do house breaks and they have a similar modus operandi for all of the crimes that they commit. And the question is, can we figure out that those crimes are committed by the same people? Because if we can, then we know, um, we know that information from one crime can be leveraged for another crime. So for instance, if we figure out who solved, if, if we figure out who cr committed this one crime, well, if we connect them to this other crime as well, then maybe we can solve that other crime too. Mm -hmm. And the police, they, they can't do anything about these problems unless they know that the problems are occurring, right? If, if there's a crime series in the area, unless they know about it, there's not much they can do about it. But if, if they know that there's a crime series in that, you know, occurring in that area, there's actions that they can take to preemptively go and, and deal with it. Um, so we wrote a piece of code together with the police department after they shoot down, shot down a bunch of our ideas. These guys were brilliant. I mean, working with them was just unbelievable. <laughs> they shot down a bunch of our ideas. And finally, we, we came to um, an algorithm that really worked. And it worked. Uh, we, we blind tested it in Cambridge. Um, 
and it really was able to find some crime series that the police took a very long time to, to find. And, and in fact, there were some cases where we were able to connect multiple crime series together that the police thought were were separate. Oh wow! Like there was one really there was one really interesting crime series where the police thought it was two separate crime series, but it turns out that. They'd kind of taken a Christmas break in, bet in between. <laughs> as, as we, as Everyone needs do. vacation. <laughs> <laughs> like they vanished mid-December and there they were at the end of January. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, and so we put this code online and uh, we found out a few years later that New York City had picked it up and oh, wow. they're using it in their patternizer algorithm that's running live at the NYPD. So so if you have these uh, uh, a very... Uh, um, Machine learning literate criminal, can, can, they, uh, can they see some of the, the, uh, the inputs to this model and start to change their behavior? Oh, yeah. They, they, they can just vary their behavior enough that we wouldn't be able to figure out that they're crime series. But then, of course, they would have to try different modus operandi, right? They would have to enter into the, the building a different way or go at a different time of day, and that could put them at risk, right? Yeah, I mean, because clearly so people... it's working for them the way it is now. So. <laughs> exactly. Well, they're... Exactly. <laughs> that's, that's true. You're, these are the these are the survivors in this uh, in this process. There's some filtering if you're caught, you know. Yeah, so. exactly. So they wouldn't want to vary their modus operandi too much. I do have a question related to predictive policing, and maybe maybe about machine learning more broadly too. Because as I've been doing some of the reading around this, you know, one of the concerns with using. Um, algorithms or AI to sort of help law enforcement, whether it's at the local level or more broadly, is the concerns about sort of the um, reinscribing of stereotypes around communities that have been long surveilled, right? And so it sounds like what you were doing here was not sort of related to that, but but that is a growing concern when it comes to the use of machine learning for for these applications. And I wonder what your thoughts are on how can people who are using these tools work to make sure they're not um, reinforcing stereotypes about particular communities? Yeah. So like, like you said, I, I, the Crime Series Detection Project was about specific crimes right. associated with specific individuals. So that's not the same thing at all um, as, as this reinforcement, you know, reinforcing these, um, these problems. Um, so these are very serious problems and they've, there's, there's not really an easy way around them because the only data that are collected are from situations where the police actually were. Yeah. And so you can't, you know, you, you can't collect data from, from, you know, situations where the police weren't. So it's really hard to figure out um, how to effectively ha handle the situation. I could say more about these problems more in the criminal justice system rather than in policing. Well, yeah, I mean, that's some experience in that. Yeah, I mean, and that would yeah. be fine because I, I was reading something where an expert on this issue of policing was making the point that one of the ways around this problem can be to remember that there are people on all sides of this. Right. So there's this this algorithm. There's this this tool that is meant to sort of help. Right. In this process. But that in the middle of all of this, sometimes the humans on either side kind of get lost. Um when we're thinking about how to use them or using them or, or the way we understand their use. So it, it's the problem is that there's no good solution to this, right? It's right. just a problem. Right. And right. what would be great is if we could dedicate resources instead of necessarily to, to making people upset by sending police officers into situations where the police don't want them to be in the community, doesn't want them to be, um, you know, if we can send social services in to, kind of diffuse these situations, 
mm-hmm. um, beforehand. But this isn't really my expertise on how to handle that problem. Right. So, so what, what does it look like in the, the criminal justice system? So in the, the criminal justice system has a slightly different problem where you have um, these risk scores that are used to predict future crime. Yeah. Okay. And the risk scores, the risk scores are being used for serious decisions like bail and parole and sentencing. And the question is, well, how much do you rely on these risk scores? Because the risk scores take into account uh, criminal history and age. And both criminal history and age have problems in terms of um, in terms of racial bias. Because yeah. if say say that police, let's say that there's a neighborhood where police um, target young black men, right? So in that case, if even if you construct a policy that focuses on age, then you're targeting blacks because the young the younger people are black, right? And they have longer criminal histories simply because they were targeted as, mm-hmm. as younger people. And so um, you, you have all these risks, risk calculations that depend heavily on age and criminal history. And these risk scores go into these um, important life-changing decisions. So what you're ending up with is policing end, ending up with these in, inside these life-changing decisions because the policing caused the age uh, at which these people were first arrested and then the age at first arrest goes into the risk score. Mm-hmm. Um, so then they may be denied bail because of, essentially because of a policing decision. So um, in order to try to, so, so the problem is if you don't use statistics here, the problem just gets worse. And we know that there's been many studies showing that if you don't involve statistics at all, the problem's worse. If you actually uh, use statistical models for these problems, then you can actually kind of help to try to undo some of that bias because you know it's there, right? It's not easy to undo it, but you can at least mitigate the problem by saying, okay, we know that there's, we know that there's this problem. Let's try to figure out how to, how to handle it. Um, so, for instance, you you really do want to involve criminal history in these in these scores because you, if you have somebody who's had like 30 past crimes, then, you know, yeah, you should probably deny them bail. <laughs> They're continually committing crimes; they should be denied bail. Um, but on the other hand, um, you know, if you have someone and this is their first misdemeanor and they're young, mm-hmm. maybe you want to think about diverting them to one of these programs that helps prevent people from committing crimes rather than sending them um, immediately through into the, the, the criminal justice system, you know, depending on what they've done. And, and so there's a huge number of programs right now to try to figure all of these things out. Um, and uh, somehow I ended up in the middle of all of this because <laughs> I work on interpretable machine learning. Mm. So, you know, some of these, some of these, um, yeah. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm trying to help with this. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So, so what do you think about some of the coverage that you see in the press of machine learning algorithms or particularly in the, the work that you've done on the crime series, what's, what's been done well and what, what could be done better? Well, I think the media in some cases saying, wow, machine learning is amazing. It's solving all the world's problems. And that's not really true. Yeah. And then in some cases, <laughs> In some cases, they're really against machine learning. Machine learning is causing all these algorithms are causing all these problems. When in fact, you if you read a little closer, you find out that what they're calling an algorithm is like a simple formula, <laughs> like take you know one point if your age is below twenty and two points if you're if you have at least one misdemeanor or something like that. You know, there's just these very simple 
scoring systems, they're calling these algorithms. These are not algorithms, they're simply models. They're either machine learning models or models that a human created. Um, and then they're saying, we're blaming the algorithm. It's the, it's the machine's fault, it's the algorithm's fault. When in fact, it's, it's actually just a simple formula. Um, so I think, I think there's a lot of, a lot of craziness going on. Um, I mean, the ProPublica story is kind of the, well, that one was particularly bad. <laughs> you, you know about the ProPublica story, right? Which story is this that you're referring to? The one called, I think it's called machine bias, mm. where, yeah. they, where they accused this black box machine learning model of being racially biased. Did you know about that one? Heard yeah. Some about it, yeah. Yes, but tell, can yeah. Give, give a little more of the background. Well, they were saying that this model that's used widely across the U.S. justice system is racially biased, and that model's called Compass. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's used, it's used across many states, and they were and they did a very simple calculation and showed that um, Compass they they had and they had a bunch of examples and they showed that blacks with lower criminal history had higher Compass scores and whites with lower criminal history, whites with higher criminal history had lower compass scores. And so they were saying, oh, there are these pairs of people, and so it's racially biased. But um, the story was all wrong. They, they, they completely messed it up. It turns out all the examples they had were typographical errors somewhere in the data set that they were using. Um, and it's really not clear whether Compass is racially biased in the way, it, it certainly wasn't racially biased in the way that they said it was. Mm -hmm. um, so the way they said it was racially biased was that it, even if you take age and criminal history into account, um, the model still depends, Compass still depends on race. Mm -hmm. And that was that, there's no evidence that that's true. In fact, we we found evidence to the contrary. So the, the report really made it look like even if you took age and criminal history into account, then it still depended on race, but I don't, I don't believe that's true. I mean, age and criminal history themselves are arguable. You can argue that those, those data themselves are, you know, are, have some element of racism in those, mm -hmm. in them. But if you take age and criminal history into account, I don't think the compass depends on race. It sounds like so, one of your criticisms of, yeah. of media, sorry, of journalism is that, or reporting, is that it seems like there's a lack of understanding of what it is people who specialize in machine learning are doing. Well, for that one, it was criminologists. I mean, the criminologist, oh. immediately after that report came out, the criminologist wrote an wrote a article saying, what are you guys doing? Yeah. Did you ask a criminologist? Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, uh, you know, we've been trying to, to, to try to figure out what was inside Compass to try to, you know, we're trying to, trying to detect exactly what their dependence on age is and what their dependence on race is so that we can at least use transparency to help us yeah. figure out what's going on. Whereas the media just sort of came to the, uh, well, I, I shouldn't say all of the media, it was, it's just the ProPublica group, um, just came to this conclusion based on bad data science. It was just bad. Yeah. Um, poor so science. What, what advice would what you I give to someone who wants to do the work that you're doing? You mean a machine learning person? Yeah. So, so someone who maybe a, an undergrad who thinks this looks really interesting and compelling and, and wants to do the kind of work you're doing now, what, what would you suggest they, they explore, they do to sort of prepare themselves? I think that whatever domain they're interested in, they should become an expert in it. So if they want to work in 
criminal justice, they have to read a lot of criminal justice. <laughs> if they want to work on power grid maintenance and repairs, they should learn a lot about power grid maintenance and repairs. And there's no excuse for putting garbage into a black box. They should know the domain well enough to know that the statistical work they're doing is sound. Yeah, as well as they should take a whole lot of machine learning classes. <laughs> that, that, was the, so that was the plug I was kind of waiting for you to, <laughs> to make. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Cynthia, thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure. Thanks, Cynthia. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net and be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.